This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. You tell lies, thinking I can't see. You can't cry because you're laughing at me. Well, it was really down earlier today, but right now, a Bitcoin down about 14% in value, $13,228 for Bitcoin. Here to tell us more about this currency or commodity or store of value is Stephen Gandell. He is an equity markets columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly, and you can follow him on Twitter at Stephen Gandell. That's uh, with P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N. And also joining us is the co-founder and chief executive officer of X-Trade, Alex Kravitz. Uh, Stephen, I want to begin with you. You've written about Bitcoin, and I'm wondering, what do you make of today's plunge? I think it's it's part of uh, the – it's either part of the growing pains or it's that uh, it's not as as good as the hype, right? I mean, the, as people have tried to use – as the price has gone up, more people got interested in it, more people – have used Bitcoin this year, but the transaction price is going up. So it's not exactly this kind of low-cost currency as advertised. Alex, what do you think? Well, you know, I think the run-up in the past uh, past month or so has been pretty much retail-driven. People are becoming uh, more aware of Bitcoin and other alternative currencies and just basically uh, trading it on a speculative basis. And I think what happened today is pretty healthy. You know, the market can't keep going up. It's going to be logarithmic hockey stick if that's the case. So, you know, I think approaching Christmas, we had some macro events uh, around the space. Some exchanges got hacked. Uh, the whole uh, Long Island IC uh, fiasco the other day where uh, they uh, changed their name to uh, Long Blockchain Corp uh, and uh, ran up about 200 percent just based on that. Uh, kind of a watershed moment for the market, and uh, people kind of started taking profit, uh, and then uh, the retail public kind of followed that. But you always find the floor uh, with crypto, and then, so that's what happened today. I think it's a healthy pullback. I think it's a healthy correction, and I think we're going to see uh, more of an upside going into next year. Uh, Bitcoin's actually bounced here, uh, at least Bitcoin to U.S. dollars bounced here in the last couple of hours. It's still down uh, 13% in U.S. dollars. But I, I guess, Alex, I want to ask you a little more about this, this notion of, of what we see with the stocks. Right, so we see all these these companies and change their name or change their business plan, or some that have had Bitcoin in their description for for months or a year and are being discovered by the market. Uh, and some of them have you know very small staffs and and the market caps. So you know, so yes, this, you know the the iced tea thing is obviously r- ridiculous, but that's a tiny market right. cap, right? But you've got other companies out there with market caps in the hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars. And I wonder what you make of that, uh, you know, when you've got companies like uh, UBI Blockchain, which still is a $940 million market cap and is trying to do a big offering of stock. Well, you know, I think in the crypto space, obviously, a lot of these tokens don't have equity value. It's just kind of speculative instruments. And so uh, when you have an opportunity to actually invest in equity in a company that does something that's fairly legitimate in the crypto space, uh, you know, people are kind of running into that. And that's why you're seeing these uh, these runs for these uh, kind of reverse merger shells. But um, What, what do you mean? Cases, Sorry, but, say that again. Well, when you have, a, you know, sort of a reverse merger, you have a situation where uh, a company uh, that's really kind of a small company, you know, does an announcement that essentially, uh, you know, creates a situation where they look like they're participating in the crypto space, whether they are or not. Uh, you know, that's kind of not the best thing in the world. But you, you do have other companies that are um, uh, that are doing pretty well with that. So Overstock, for instance, uh, is just about to launch their TZR exchange. 
Uh, they raised about 100 million in a couple of days ago on staff launch. So, um, you know, definitely some of these companies are uh, are doing the right thing, and uh, the capital inflows that are chasing that are based on the fact that there's equity in a company that's actually doing something legitimate in the blockchain space. So that's I mean, I opinion. think most bubbles die in supply, and I think that's probably what we've seen the most over the past two weeks. We had the CBOE uh, futures, we had CME futures. We now have these ridiculous companies changing their names. There's a, there was a frenzy, uh, and it maybe now it's satisfied, and that's why the stock price is going down. Uh, the Bitcoin price going down, sorry. And the other thing I wanted to point out was interesting because you said it bounced. Uh, the other notable thing today is that for the first time, I think the futures are trading below the Bitcoin price, right? So we had that weird gap uh, when the future started trading of like a thousand and then it expressing came Expressing pessimism. Right, expressing pessimism, expressing that, you know, the futures market. Um, there or that people- maybe people don't want to open a futures account. Well, no, but the, but the people who are opening the futures account are the, even the ones who are opening the futures account. You expect those people to be the bullish ones. They're now saying Bitcoin's going to be lower next month. Yeah. Or at least not willing to take a shot well, that it's going to be, or betting on a floor at least. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of there's a lot of funds out there now that are basically long uh, Bitcoin, and then they're kind of picking up the dips. So you're seeing a lot of smart money come in when these dips happen and picking it up at a discount, which is why you saw that bounce. I mean, I was looking at it, so it went from... I think 650 billion market cap down to 400, and now it's back to 500. Uh, so there's always kind of that floor that exists where the smart money comes in and picks it up. And uh, you know, as far as the futures, I, th- I think one of the issues is that the futures don't settle in Bitcoin; they settle in cash. Uh, and so there's a bit of a divergence between the underlying uh, and the, the settlement process. So uh, that's why you're also seeing kind of a divergence. But um, you know, overall, I think it's healthy to have a pullback of this uh, this magnitude. And uh, I think the fact that it's stabilizing now, uh, you know, kind of says a lot about so the resiliency of this market. But at the same Alex, time, it's um, a lot a lot of it's speculative as well. Well, let me ask you a more basic question. Why do you think people are so excited about these? Because, these, you know, uh, some of these opportunities are sketchier than others. No one's buying Long Island iced tea thinking this is the best, purest <laughs> play on Bitcoin. Why do you think people are so excited about this? Well, you know, Bitcoin is an uh, instrument that is limited in its existence. So there's only going to be ever 21 million Bitcoin. Uh, I think 16 million have been mined already. There's only about 4 million left to mine, and that's going to take 120 years. Uh, and then 4 million of those that have already been mined have been lost. Um, so it's essentially a store of value, cryptographic store of value, and people are attracted to the fact there's not a lot of it. And it becomes um, something where if other people buy it and other people want to buy it and there's less of it, and it just kind of creates the situation where there's a frenzy, feeding frenzy in this space. Well, I mean, I definitely – well the alternative coins. I think this week we've seen that it's not a great store of value. And then this issue that uh, – or this claim that it's it's limited in supply, I don't buy it either. I think one of the things that kicked off the, the sell-off this week was the mm-hmm. fact that um, Bitcoin Cash, I believe. I, sometimes I sp- uh, mix up with Bitcoin Gold, but I believe Bitcoin Cash is the one started uh, trading on Coinbase, and it went up to three thousand. That and that was part of basically a split, right? So if if you can split Bitcoin and some of that value goes into one of these spinoffs, it shows that it's not limited. All right. Well, Bitcoin's up eleven percent during our conversation, so you got that going for you. Fantastic stuff, guys. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen Gendel, Bloomberg Gadfly, and Alexander Kravitz, founder and CEO of X Trade. This is Bloomberg. I love that that was the first song ever played on MTV, Once Upon a Time. Um, uh, Mike Vorhoff joins us right now with a look at uh, with the latest big changes in the world of TV and video, uh, with Amazon and Apple's truce actually taking effect. Uh, Mike uh, Vorhoff joins us right now with Magnet Advisors. Uh, Mike, first of all, talk to me about this, this simmering quiet war here between Amazon and Apple. Well, how did this uh, exhibit itself? 
that, isn't it? I guess it's World War Three in the in the video world, right? Because you've got you know everybody pushing into original video content. You know, Fang, Fang spelled with multiple A's, um, and and this is a classic return from the Internet Web 1.0 of of the frenemy. You know, so they help each other, but they compete with each other, and this is a super good example of that. Can you explain at, why? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Corey. Well, I, look, I go to the Amazon site right now. I go to smile at amazon.com because it allows them a portion of my purchases to go to charity. But uh, what you, you can buy there now, you can buy an Apple TV, a 4K Apple TV device that you couldn't buy uh, on this website uh, until recently. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good example. And quite frankly, this is not going to propel Apple TV, you know, in front of the other OTT devices. I mean, they definitely have, have you know, kind of lagged behind. Uh, but it's a big hole they're filling since, uh, you know, uh, the great majority of the people that, uh, that already have an Apple TV want to be able to watch what they're already paying for, Amazon Prime, on their Apple TV. Uh, most downloaded app at launch, according to TechCrunch. So obviously, it's it's good for Apple and it's good for Amazon. It's they're each kind of giving each other a Christmas present. Mike, they're also uh, going to sell the Chromecast, right? You know, it's it's literally. I thought about this last night. It's literally hard to keep track of who's selling what devices for each other, and likewise, who's selling what services for each other. Because you know, Amazon has a package of traditional cable services. Um, I would assume that the overall direction, despite the Amazon Apple friction, has been to sell as many of these devices as they're allowed to sell. Um, so whether it's Chromecast, whether it's Roku, whether it's, you know, to a lesser extent, I think Apple, but, but Roku and Chromecast, Google Chromecast, they want to get distributed in as many places as possible. And yet you've got them in direct competition with each other, not just in terms of selling devices, but offering video services, where Apple's even doing some original content now, but certainly offering the rental of movies and, and, and television shows and so on. And making some uh, big and Amazon, buyers. And Amazon Prime is spending uh, probably $5 billion this year on original content. You're absolutely right. I mean, this is the Internet version of, of, of Warner Brothers, Sony, Paramount, Fox movies, you know, punching it out for Labor Day weekend, Memorial Day weekend. Uh, I mean, what we're talking about, $10, $15 billion conceivably in original content production in the next year or two from five or six different big companies. When is so, this all going to be – sorry, when is this all going to be in, just incorporated into the TV set? Because you don't really need any of this external stuff, do you? Um, that is a great question. It would also make all this, I think, easier. Uh, I think everybody you know that I know has a variety of degree of difficulty with with implementing these things. You know, Roku's probably in Chromecast because they're just a stick you stick in. I mean, I, that's I, everyone really knows want over the seven, age of twelve. I was going to say, do you really want seven remote controls and then no. that other remote control to control the volume? No. I mean, it makes no sense. No. I mean, I have been saying for years, Apple should make a real TV that when you turn it on, Apple TV is fully incorporated. And, and, and they should have done it years ago when they were still, when there was still a electronic sell-through market for this video, not just a, a VOD market. So why don't they do it? You know, I, 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 I've asked myself that every year when, when I've said they're going to do it and they don't do it. I'll and, tell you why they don't do it. Tell us why they no won't do it. Don't ask me anything. I on, ask, all right, go ahead. Movies? I was just waiting for some Other people are further ahead in movies? 
No, because it's a commodity. Because the TV set, the plasma screen, the LCD screen, whatever the technology is going to be, that's the commodity and they can't win at that. Whereas they can actually deliver something of value and that's unique with the Apple TV device itself. But what about a smartphone? They could have done a partnership. Perhaps, but then they'd be stuck with a, with, with one of the commodities. They, yeah. they were married into one of the commodity makers, not yeah. not uh, have the, the pick of them. I mean, this area is one where Apple is a far third, fourth place. So whatever they've done has not been as right as it has with almost everything else they've done. Yeah, I was going to ask, Corey and, and, and uh, uh, Mike, I mean, if you don't have Apple TV, so what? What are you missing? Uh, some probably some you know probably some high end stuff some 4D stuff but no that's that Tim you're exactly right that that is the the question you know um, all of these services are being provided by all these people this is not a place where you're going to be able to you know differentiate yourself Apple would argue that what they're delivering is an easier uh, exactly the thing you're saying is hard that, that that all these other devices are pain in the butt to use and this one's simple and that the, the design in this is simple and you get you might get uh, uh, some of the great movies and everything else you can get somewhere else but that the interface with this is a breeze the remote control uh-huh. is very simple and have you ever tried to search for anything I you know you can't do that Try searching with any of these devices. You don't even end up with a keyboard. Yeah. You feel like an, um, you know, you feel like a right. Which of, which of the many services I subscribe to: HBO, Showtime, Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Apple? Where can I watch Atomic Blonde for free? And I won't tell you. Yep. And you know we're going to be talking about Discovery. I fear five years from now. Uh, and hopefully with you, Mike Vorhaus. Mike Vorhaus of Magnet Advisors calling in from L.A. Let's see some IPOs. What's going to happen in the world of venture next year? IPOs were not a big exit strategy for our venture investments in the last year. But is that going to change in 2018? Jeff Graybaugh joins us right now, U.S. venture capital leader at Ernst & Young, with a look at some of the deals we might see in 2018. Uh, I guess, Jeff, we should start at the beginning. Uh, what kind of money is rolling into, hedge, or into venture funds uh, at this sort of second half of the year and as we maybe look forward into 2018? Well, from a venture capital formation perspective, the asset class still uh, is a very highly attractive asset class for alternative asset managers. So I think we're going to continue to see the capital formation side be strong, and I think we'll continue to see um, fund rate, you know, fund in- investments into um, companies continue to be at near all-time highs. Jeff, can you speak to the issue of the healthcare sector? And I'm specifically interested in the gene editing, cell editing uh, technology that really has come to the forefront here in battling not only rare genetic diseases, but also in battling cancer. Well, what we're seeing on the venture side is that you know there have been investments made in companies like that, and we anticipate uh, the biotech sector to help lead a, um, an increase of the IPO market initially, and we're hoping that bleeds over into uh, the tech sector and that the tech sector, sector will fall, follow and that we'll hopefully have a, a very solid uh, 2018 in terms of an IPO class. Getting back to the question, I mean, those technologies have enabled um, practitioners to provide highly specified and highly um, individually specific 
uh, targeted therapies to individuals who are facing these life-threatening diseases. And so that's a new wave of technology. And these are very expensive technologies to bring to market. And, you know, the model from a uh, innovation perspective going back, you know, 20 plus years has been to raise uh, venture capital to get good data in terms of your um, early clinical trials and then uh, raise you know, public money to help bring those com- uh, those drugs and solutions to market, given that they cost you know several hundred millions millions of dollars to get there. I mean, there. I'm being you know the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference is in San Francisco every year, of course, uh, in the spring. Once upon a time, known as the H and Q Healthcare Conference, and uh, uh, the companies of all sizes are just bombarding me with emails trying to get on Bloomberg Radio on TV. They want to they want to tell us what they're doing, and they want to. Uh, uh, share their work, and they want to they want to get some uh, uh, attention to their to, to the for for potential investors. Yeah, no, I mean it's a very yeah. We had this similar uh, similar situation several years ago, uh, where there was a very strong uh, biotech IPO class that then helped you know buoy the market that tech was able to follow on top of. So it's a very interesting time, and you know, and you look into the public markets, um, a lot of these companies. Uh, that are very large, you know, the large uh, biopharmaceutical companies are running up against scenarios where they've got um, drugs coming off patent. So they're looking downstream at, you know, some real big holes in their patent portfolios and their revenue streams. So that also provides uh, opportunity for deal making on their side, too. Jeff, is there a distinction to be made between the cost of starting a company and then the amount of venture money that you need? And the cost of breaking away, either exiting that particular investment or differentiating yourself from the competition. Well, I think what we've seen is, and the you know Moore's law has really kind of ripped through uh, the company creation cycle, and a lot of the technologies that have been developed, especially as it relates to starting a tech company, have been pushed into uh, the company creation cycle. Whereas, you mean you go back to the first. What do you mean? Of the- well, you go back to the first wave of the internet, and you had to um, you had to provide uh, bandwidth and connectivity. So you had to buy hardware, you had to put it in a colo spot, you had to own all that. Well, today you do that with a swipe of a credit card through AWS or some other service that can do that and not have to do the whole you know the total cost of ownership. You know, back in the day, you would have to also provide um, you had to buy very expensive uh, hard- software licenses to help manage your website and you know, and build it. And so that would cost several million dollars. And today, you know, there are um, fully functioning solutions that you can go online and have a fully functioning commerce site up in weeks rather than months for a fraction of the cost. And so this is really pushed down. Uh, and, and then, you know, you think about distribution and cu- customer acquisition. Now you go through you know, before you would do a button deal on, you know, Yahoo or AOL, where it was a seven-figure button deal, and today, you know, you're doing, you know, AdWords or uh, Facebook or Twitter for, you know, free to no cost. So it's, you know, the the cost of that has started is to crush, has crushed those costs. What that has led to be is, is that the funnel to enter the venture pipeline is wide open. You know, you can start these companies for. 50k and and prove and get a you know proof of concept and prove if they're you know real companies and that there's their revenue generation opportunities. Uh, what that has done though is that's led a flood of companies in, and that creates intense competition because all these companies compete for people, space, advisors, investors, 
customers. I mean, even if you're not in the same sector, you compete with large enterprise customers across the scale of who will then ultimately be their uh, the client. Yep. Jeff Graybaugh, U.S. Venture Capital Leader at Ernst & Young. Thank you very much. I'll be bringing in a brand new year. Bringing in a brand new year. All right, let's bring in a brand new year and let's conclude this one with Hema Parmar, our hedge fund reporter for Bloomberg News. And uh, Hema can be followed on Twitter at Parmar Hema, H-E-M-A. Uh, okay, Parmar uh, Hema. <laughs> uh, John, uh, Paul Tudor Jones mm-hmm. says that low volatility is becoming dangerous. Mm-hmm. To whom is it becoming dangerous and why? He's saying that uh, low volatility, yes, is is becoming dangerous, that it has lulled investors um, into a false sense of complacency, that they'll be shocked in the event they need to run for their exits. They may struggle um, to to get out when they need to get out. And um, he's saying that a pullback in QE... Uh, could trigger a downward spiral in asset prices and create a significant change. That sounds like bad news, but for a macro hedge fund manager, um, they've been waiting and they continue to wait uh, for for volatility in in markets for them to make money. That's when they're supposed to perform at their best. Um, so they've been anticipating and hoping for some change in vol and are looking through to next year. He is expecting to see to see that change. Whether it happens or not, we'll have to see, depending on um, how the taper goes. But uh, it's, it's, it, we do see money flow into macro funds, having flown into macro funds um, over the past year. $15 billion um, have, of dollars have um, moved into the strategy, more than any other strategy this year through September, according to investments. So um, the, the big question mark is, you know, will, will it all pan out? So uh, speaking of all, yes. you know, I'm looking at Bitcoin every day, all day, just for fun. <laughs> and we had uh, Mike Novogartz was uh, going to launch a crypto fund. He got a lot of attention for uh, being a serious guy on Wall Street, having some serious attention to some of the other, others didn't seem to be taking seriously. Now he's backing away from this. Right. Yes. Is he alone in this world of, of hedge funds looking at uh, crypto cryptocurrencies? Well, there uh, we've seen a number of the smaller managers really look towards cryptocurrencies. A lot of the bigger uh, institutional investors really have stayed in the sidelines, watching to see uh, to see how it plays out. Um, I imagine for situations like this, when the volatility is is so high, um, and yes, it was um, interesting to see today the news of of Novogratz um, kind of backtracking on those plans. And as uh, as we spoke to managers looking through to next year, um, one manager said that he expects to see a Bitcoin ETF, and um, that that should help to add legitimacy to the asset class. That might help to see um, more institutional, more big money kind of coming into the space. Um, but the, the question is, will they be able to tolerate the, the volatility as we've seen it today? And also concerns over um, storing these currencies in a way that is, is safe. Hema, what about the legitimacy of hedge funds? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've got a market that is up 20% and all you had to do mm-hmm. was invest in an ETF <laughs> that tracked the S&P 500, right. Right. Uh, what's the argument then to pay Two percent of assets, twenty percent of profits, mm-hmm. to people that have some special magic that 
not everybody can access. Right. And I think that question has been one that investors have really been thinking about over the past couple of years when hedge fund performance has been lagging and not just been lagging, been doing, you know, quite terribly. Last year was not a good year for the strategy. This year is a bit better in comparison. But yes, when you look at how stocks have performed, you could have just, you know, put it in, in you know, the S&P and ETF and see uh, see that perform. Um, I think people go into hedge funds to, in the event of some sort of turmoil, they're hoping that can um, provide some relief. Um, the question then is, you know, when you see that turmoil, will they be able to perform? Will they be able to hedge your portfolio? Um, they haven't always in the past. And so it depends on which manager you picked, and it depends on their track record and their ability to moving forward. Um, well, certainly there, there is that, uh, uh, but there's also you know the the environment which they work in. When we when we think about all the places where these funds are launching and all the kind of the crazy geopolitical world we're in right now with with Brexit, uh, with with what may be happening in Catalonia, with with increased tension on North Korea, Russia, and so on. Um, I wonder sort of where if there's geopolitical opportunity for hedge funds. Mm-hmm. On the geopolitical side, that was a question that we've been asking, um, looking forward through to next year. And it's, you know, we keep hearing it's a known unknown. People are, are watching it. They're trying to figure out how to manage it and how to grasp it. But um, some of the, the terms that were kind of thrown out to us was one person was expecting a sort of reckoning with North Korea. Somebody else said that... Um, uh, that tensions with the Middle East appear to be a blind spot, that concerns over geopolitics were a potential pothole. Now, whether or not you know there's a way to trade around that is just something that they seem to be looking at. But certainly top of mind, as we have seen some more tensions kind of come to the front this year and uh, question marks about how that kind of pans, pans out. But um, uh, nobody really knows. <laughs> you see, Corey, nobody knows. <laughs> Somebody knows. No, not in Hollywood. I just don't know that person. <laughs> I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. The drive to the close brings us all the way to San Antonio, Texas, where Tom Stringfellow joined us right now. He's the president and CIO, the chief investment officer of Frost Investment Advisors. They've got a, they're managing nearly $4 billion. And uh, uh, Tom, I wonder when you look at the markets today as we propel towards uh, Christmas, right around the corner, you see any stocking stuffers out there? Yeah, and I appreciate the call. And I'll tell you, as I'm looking at the screen, you know, it, it brings kind of a Christmas spirit. I see lots of red and green. So, you know, I look at that. It reminds me I still have some shopping to do here since I get off the phone call. See, the but, former uh, the former short seller in me would say it's only it's only green if it's red. I know. <laughs> and, yeah, I was just looking at, you know, what kind of short volume we have right now. And I mean, we really are an interesting market. You know, it's kind of nice to see things settling down at least for a day and, yeah, I'm not attributing that to anything other than, you know, some of the traders taking a few hours off early, you know, get into the holiday season. But uh, I think the uh, recent activities, you know, we've seen in Capitol Hill have probably set us up for some interesting uh, uh, trading days when we get into the new year and people really start looking at tax packages. 
Tom, what are the what? Uh, maybe just offer us some of the questions that you are receiving from your clients uh, as a subsidiary of Frost Bank. I mean, you deal with uh, wealthy individuals uh, from across the region. What are they asking you? Uh, and, and you know, it, it has changed over the last few months. You know, I, I tell you, a couple of months ago, we were starting to talk about are hearing questions like, isn't everything getting too frothy? And, you know, we've had a slow transition that's really started to speed up. Those questions are going from, is it frothy, to, you know, are there buying opportunities under, you know, this new uh, tax regime? And, and you know, it's almost been a sea change in terms of energy and interest in what is out there that we could take advantage of, you know, with the way that, you know, we're kind of setting up the new year. So, you know, in terms of clients, you're right. We we manage uh, anywhere from you know traditional high net worth, uh, trust accounts, definitely retail accounts, mutual fund accounts, institutional accounts, consultant accounts, and you know the common theme really has been for so many people, you know, for, especially for those that stepped out, you know, post re, uh, post recovery back in uh, you know back in uh, '09. Uh, may have stepped out and missed a lot of the momentum. I've had a few people that have stepped out for a long time, and now they're trying to figure out, gosh, is it too late? Well, the answer, obviously, is that, you know, we've missed a heck of a run-up. But, uh, again, I think the markets are giving us a, a breather so that, you know, we can start looking at what valuation levels should be once we start factoring in what corporate earnings might be able to do next year. So as we start to do that, I mean, are you getting calls from clients to look at the new tax bill and wanting to do things uh, suddenly before the end of the year, more than just, you know, uh, whatever IRA moves or things that people typically do at year end, but really looking at the tax bill saying, hey, I got to do something. I mean, you're in Texas, so maybe you're not affected by the, the property tax issues that affect the coasts and much as well as a, a higher state. But you've got a reasonable state income tax there, too, I believe. Well, you know, one of the advantages here is is no state sales tax or income tax. And we certainly got our sales tax, but right. um, yeah, in terms of last minute planning, you know, this is one of those unique years where there's really not much that can be done as we're closing out the year, purely because you know you really have to stretch to look at uh, any financial assets that got beaten up. You know, there's a few stocks here and there, a few companies that uh, didn't participate to some extent in the market or, you know, there's a, a big industrial name I'll not mention that seemed to have gotten uh, hit around a little bit over the last couple of months that, uh, yeah, if you owned it, yeah, you might have some, uh, you know, tax law selling opportunities. But, you know, we've, we've been going through our portfolios and, you know, there's just very few uh, sectors across the globe that have offered any offset to, I suspect, what will be large capital gain distributions from most of the mutual funds out there from, you know, just uh, gains in general as managers or investors were trying to trim back or realign or reallocate their portfolios after what's been a tremendous run for so many individual sectors, stocks, and uh, uh, geographies. Tom, uh, you sit pretty close to Lackland Air Force Base as well as Kelly Field and uh, Fort Sam Houston. Uh, what about aerospace and defense companies? Uh, with the new uh, defense budget, uh, we look like we're going to get some big money put behind these kinds of contractors. Any thoughts on that industry group? Well, I think, you know, that's, that's a, a great observation. And, you know, I, I think the uh, 
opportunities are certainly going to be in the defense contract names, the big names. Uh, you know, now I've not gone into the uh, into the data enough to really start looking at specific industries within those those particular uh, categories. But you know, I think it is a safe assumption to uh, to really start looking at some tactical plays this coming year. That in the past year or so, it's really been more strategic holding, holdings, and you know, for the several months, you know, we saw the traditional Trump plays, you know, do well, and then just kind of uh, the the steam was gone, the hot air was gone, and and now I think we're probably seeing a, a turnaround. Uh, you know, and, and you know, I look at you know the energies and look at financials. Uh, I think some of the consumer staple names are. are really positive. Uh, I think really as we look at earnings growth across so many of the industries that uh, I, I hate to just keep pointing back to the to the tax package because you know I've, I've kind of got mixed emotions about it but you know when you start looking at where companies can actually start reinvesting into capital capex and Assuming that those additional savings are used for something other than just stock buybacks, you know whether it's organic growth, it's it's R and D, it's uh, bringing in more talent. Uh, all of that is real positive. Well, interesting times to be sure. I'd, I'd love to hear more about your thoughts for the tax plan. But next time, Tom, please, Tom Stringfellow brought us our drive to the close from San Antonio, Texas. He's a CIO at Frost Investment Advisors. This is Bloomberg. Greece, why not? John Matthews joins us right now. Partner at Harborview Advisors. With a look at how uh, this new tax plan might actually help uh, affection between technology companies in M&A. Uh, John, explain to me how uh, this bill might uh, affect M&A here. Uh, obviously, companies having more cash is probably a big part of that, or, or being able to repay. Yeah, that's the easy one. Say. Yeah, hello, Pam. Hello, Corey. Yeah, very exciting times indeed, I think. Although most of my accounting friends have a look on their faces like they just canceled both Christmas and Hanukkah. Uh, there's a lot of work for those guys to do, and they're calling this Let's the throw three Let's throw in New Year's and Kwanzaa. Ts. Why not? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. They're calling this the three Ts, Trump trillion-dollar tax cut. Um, and look, to your question, my firm, we're focused in technology uh, and this repatriation of cash. It's billions of dollars in cash back to the U.S. potentially, and most of it. Um, we think with technology companies will lead to more M&A. Um, so I can focus on technology for uh, 2018, and, and look, I'll make a prediction. Here are the three things I would predict. One, one, a diversion from the mean. You know, I listen to Bloomberg every morning, and Tom Keene, as he so expertly calls out a reversion to the mean, this is going the other way. This is such a big change and represents such uh, orders of magnitude and change potential. The behavior of managers, I think, um, is changing in a different direction from normal. Second, it's bifurcated. Um, the megas, the mega tech companies, the FANG technology monsters, right. um, Facebook, the Amazons, right? They have a different problem. They, they have no shortage of capital. And bringing True. home more capital. Although like, you can argue like, that, that, that Apple in particular has a shortage of capital in the U.S. Sure, we're with you there. And they're an exception to almost every rule. But for everyone else, it's probably a bigger headache. Uh, so, look, in, in terms of activity, I think it's the middle market where there's real juice. And we think it will lead to more M&A, and our clients are telling us that they're looking forward to uh, using that cash and putting it to work. And M&A is higher on their priority scheme than it used to be. And, and that's the third point. The third point is middle market. You know, by a rough count, 
$250 billion of the amount of cash overseas is held in middle market U.S. multinationals. That's about the size of the U.S. tech M&A market in a single year, excluding some outliers like the potential Broadcom Qualcomm deal that was $105 billion and went away. So if you get really amped up and you add a few turns of leverage, you've got a really serious potential change, even if you take into account you know, some in-country capital that the multinationals leave in those countries. There's still plenty of capital to come back and could go to work in M&A. John, uh, let's just maybe go backwards here because I want to start with your point about the middle market. Do you then see greater business opportunities for those organizations that do valuations of business as well as the investment bankers, the accountants, the lawyers? (laughs) Seriously, I mean, because this is really, you know, particularly if it's middle market, that could have an outsized effect on the firms that specialize in this particular segment. Yeah, I'm with you, and, and the reason I was chuckling is, you know, you might want to call that the trickle-down effect, because the ecosystem around M&A absolutely will get amped up. Um, and there's more work to do, right, because these are major decisions that require board approval, um, executives, you know, changing their priorities and their capital allocation structures. That takes time, effort, and you're right, study. And so any of the accounting firms or investment banks that are helping them build those plans – I think every one of the strategic plans gets revisited, at least to some way, because this represents a new source or a new, you know, a, a, um, a new opportunity for applying capital. Okay, so number two is this idea of the shortage of capital for smaller firms. That's going away, right? Yeah, here's I'm troubled on this point, right? Because on the one hand, um, you could say capital has not inhibited the M&A activity that's been going on for the past few years since since 2008. Um, the debt markets are wide open. People are getting multiple turns on their acquisitions. So, you know, has there really been a shortage of capital? And the answer is probably not that much. However, this much free cash coming back, I think that changes behavior. Uh, I, I think, you know, again, I think this causes people to relook at what their priorities are. Does it change behavior because as a chief executive or as an executive at a company that gets bigger, your pay gets bigger and your stock price increases. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. And if you think about all the things you can do to, you know, let, let's play that out, right? The options are you could, uh, you know, pay, up, pay back more cash in dividends. The existing shareholders tend to like that, but it doesn't sustain, you know, much in the way of share, creating shareholder value. You could do a share buyback, you know, although most managers are notoriously bad at creative entry points into their stock. You could build. Um, the problem with enforcing on, you know, focusing on building and technology is that time. Time's not on your side. So that leads you to buying. And if you believe or continue to believe that there's a secular shift in technology, um, it's still a growth story, and you want to be building. And so those companies with the strongest M&A brand are more competitively advantaged, and I think they'll go to work in the M&A market. If, are there... Is it just? A, I mean, does this boost valuations, or I mean, what does this do? We, you know, we've seen, for example, semiconductors. Uh, in fact, I want to be clever and pull up the socks index for the year. But semiconductors this year have received so many bids, and there's been such consolidation already in that sector that we've seen uh, the valuations across the sector for all kinds of companies rise for the year. The socks, uh, the forty percent semiconductor index up, yeah, forty yeah. percent on the year. Fantastic move. Yeah, you know. So you can hear me getting amped up describing this, and if I take a deep breath and step back, there no, no, are no, don't do that. Get clear, amped up. Come on, come on. 
<laughs> Grab that right, coffee. Well, I, got plenty of, I, got, I got plenty of gift baskets. Where's that five-hour energy? When weren't you amped up? Right, right. There you go. There you go. Um, yeah, look, I think there are all kinds of, if not bubbly or inflationary or, you know, this puts a risk bid, an M&A risk bid into the market. So I think this does put um, – uh, it does. Uh, it, it does have an impact on valuations. It does have an impact on expectations, and uh, there's no doubt in my mind that um, I think this is a train. Look, it's it sure looks like a slow train wreck. We've all seen slow train wrecks in the market before, where we think we can predict it and we have a sense for it, but the order of magnitude surprises. And, and I, I think that's where yeah. this one goes. And our clients are telling us that's how they think. Not touching that metaphor this week, but John Mathis, thank you very much. Harborview Asset, uh, Harborview Advisors, uh, joining us on the phone. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Corey Johnson. He's Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.